Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. The question I want us to think about today is what do we do when we come under pressure, when it feels like we are in the press, when it feels like it's pushing down and pushing up on us, how do we handle it? And in particular, I want to think about what we do when our faith comes under pressure. And that will happen. It will happen that your faith feels pressure on it. It would be a mistake to think that flourishing as a Christian means that circumstances will always go your way, that everything will be fine, that it will be easy, that you'll fit in, because it just won't. That's not the story of the Bible. It's much more flourishing as a Christian about God doing something in you and through you, whatever your circumstances may be. So it's not about making life easy, but it's about God's work, even when it gets hard, even when the pressure comes. And there's a whole variety of forms that pressure might take. So you could go to the really extreme end, and in many parts of the world, this is how it is, that the pressure takes the form of outright persecution. People being put in prison for their faith, or people being attacked violently, even death for faith in some parts of the world. It could be, uh, maybe not physical, but it could be verbal scorn. In some contexts, that's the form that pressure takes. People having a go, people saying mean and nasty things. It could be being in a setting where people are constantly wanting to argue with you, constantly wanting to shoot down your faith, constantly wanting to critique it and erode it. It could be, and I think for many of us it's probably this one, something a bit more unspoken, but just a tangible sense of constraint around your faith. So it's fine, you have your faith, you you go along with it. If it works for you, it works for you, but make sure you don't rock the boat. Stay in your lane. Keep it in a little box. Don't bring it out of the box. But there's the pressure, isn't there, that it has to stay small, it has to stay silent, or else dot, dot, dot. And I think when it's not really defined what the or else leads to, but there's just this sense of, it's fine, just keep it private and you can, you can have it. That's the pressure for some of us. How do we stay strong under pressure? How do we flourish? How do we thrive? Well, today I'm going to look at an extreme example of someone facing pressure, but I think the principles apply. So whatever the pressure that you face for faith is, whatever it looks like in your context, I think this will be helpful and this will speak into, even if the the actual circumstances that you experience don't quite match the pressure that this character in our Bible story had to face. We're going to look at Stephen. And we're in Acts chapter 6. We've been going through the book of Acts over recent weeks. And I'm going to pick up the story from verse 8 of Acts 6. Um, yeah, you may want to turn there, or if you want to follow on the screen, you can do that. Stephen, full of grace and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and others of those from Cilicia and Asia, stood up and argued with Stephen. 
but they couldn't withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he spoke. Then they secretly instigated some men to say, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. They stirred up the people, as well as the elders and the scribes. Then they suddenly confronted him, seized him, and brought him before the council. They set up false witnesses who said, This man never stops saying things against this holy place and the law. For we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses handed on to us. And all who sat in the council looked intently at him. They saw his face was like the face of an angel. Then the high priest asked him, are these things so? And Stephen replied, we're going to pause there, we'll look at his reply in a little bit. But that's the circumstances around Stephen. Let's just um, give you a bit of background. Let's tell a bit about who Stephen is, who he is as a person. Some of you might have been around last week when we were introduced to Stephen. Some of you might not have been here. But what was happening in this early church, this is the uh, opening days of the church in Jerusalem, a whole bunch of people have become Christians and they're figuring out how to do church life together. And quite quickly, an issue of racial injustice has come up with regards food for widows. So the widows of one ethnic group weren't getting fed, the widows of a different ethnic group were, there was a bit of tension, and the church needed to sort it out and to get things resolved. And So what the leaders do is they say, look, this is a really important thing to deal with, so we need to get some people on the job. So find some people who are full of the Holy Spirit, who are full of wisdom, who you trust to, to sort this out, to represent the people involved and to make sure everyone gets what they're entitled to. Stephen is one of the seven people who's chosen to do that job. So that means that Stephen was not one of the apostles, he wasn't one of the senior leaders, but he was a well-standing member of this congregation. He, uh, he was someone whose primary area of serving in church life was administrative, it was organisational, it was making sure the right things went to the right people. I bet if Stephen was around today, he would be a spreadsheet guy. That's the impression I get. He's trusted for that kind of job. And there was pressure. The press was upon him. You, you can build it up, can't you? You can start by thinking about the general pressure on this whole community because some of the leaders, Peter and John, we've already seen, have been brought before the council, they've been threatened, they've even been beaten and the councillor are putting on them, you've got to stop telling people about Jesus. And oh, No, no, no can do. We can't stop declaring what we've heard. But there's the pressure there. There's the internal pressure in the church. We started to see uh, with Ananias and Sapphira the hypocrisy around giving. Uh, we, we've mentioned this racial tension bubbling up. It, it, it's something that could tear this early community apart at the seams. And then on Stephen himself, as he's going out, as he's sharing the gospel, he's doing signs and wonders, there's more pressure because some people now have decided they're going to get in his face, they're going to argue. As he's telling people about Jesus, they're going to push back at it and they're arguing against everything that he says. When it, it turns out they can't withstand the way he's speaking, then uh, they up the pressure even more. They seize him and they bring him before the council. He's now having to give account for himself. And eventually, and we'll, we'll get onto this a bit later in the talk, but eventually they decide his answer is not acceptable to them, and he's stoned to death. He's the first Christian who's martyred for his faith. 
So he's a guy who really is facing pressure. But what marks him out? Well, some of the things I notice, um, last week's passage, verse 3, it says that they were looking for people who were filled with the Holy Spirit and with wisdom. And then when Stephen himself was introduced in verse 5, it says he was a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. In today's passage, verse 8, he's full of grace and power. Verse 10 highlights the wisdom and spirit with which he spoke. Verse 15 talks about how when he was standing before this council, his face was shining like an angel. Isn't that an incredible thought? Like his face shining like an angel. And then if you jump down to chapter 7, verse 55, again, as he's about to be stoned to death, it says he was filled with the Holy Spirit. I wonder if you notice the language that's coming up over and over again. He's filled, he's filled, he's filled. And it's talking about the Holy Spirit. It's talking about uh, grace and power and faith and all these things that come from God. He's full to the brim of them. It's interesting to me that it's not just championing Stephen's inherent qualities. It's not saying Stephen, he, he was a man who, he just had more resilience than your average guy. He was just peaceful, he was calm, he had a demeanour that could handle it. That's not what he's saying. It's not highlighting what marks Stephen out as a person. It's highlighting what marks Stephen out because of the work of God in his life. He's full of the Holy Spirit and of everything that comes with it. The grace, the power, the wisdom. Which makes sense. Think about a hydraulic press. If you want to withstand pressure, if you're just kind of an empty shell, you're just as, like, imagine kind of a hollow ball that's not filled with anything, it's easily going to crumple. If you want something to withstand pressure, it needs to be filled, it needs to be solid, it needs to be filled with something strong and something durable to withstand pressure. And Stephen was filled with the Holy Spirit. We will not endure pressure for our faith when it comes by our own strength, by thinking, I've got this, I can handle this on my own, by myself, I can take whatever comes at me. We'll probably crumple, we probably won't stand. But when we're filled with the Spirit of God, we can stand and we can endure. I don't know about you, sometimes when I read a story like this, it makes me think, yeah, but would I? Would I actually be able to act like Stephen acted? Would I actually be able to stand? Like, I look at um, how I am now. It's like, if this was in that situation, could I actually do it? I was really helped by uh, a quote from Corrie Ten Boom. Now, Corrie Ten Boom uh, was a Christian who was put in Ravensbrück concentration camp when she was a teenager because uh, her family had been helping to shelter Jews from the Nazis. And she recalls, she says, when I was a little girl, I remember I talked with my father and I said, Daddy, I will never be strong enough to be a real witness and a martyr for Jesus. And father said, when you go to travel, when do I give you the train ticket or the money for it? Do I give it you three weeks before? I said, no, Daddy, the day that I go to travel. And father said, well, that's what God does. You don't need to have the power to suffer for Jesus at the moment, but the moment that you will have the great honour to be a martyr for Jesus, the Lord will give you everything. And I've experienced the Holy Spirit is there always to do the job, to make us ready. You see, we don't need today to have uh, the strength, the endurance to deal with 
the pressure that was on Stephen. What we do need is the strength and the endurance to deal with the pressure that's on you and me. Whatever you're facing today, the Spirit will fill you and strengthen you for it. So we've got a present empowering of the Holy Spirit. Here's the second thing, though, that Stephen had that made him thrive and flourish when the pressure came. He knew the story. He knew the story of how God's worked in the past. And this is crucial to get the story right, because I think a lot of the times we get the story totally wrong. We tell the story and it's like the crescendo that we're expecting is all of a sudden God's people are going to end up with everything going well, being viewed with favour in society, having earthly power and prestige and position. And we think we'll be at the top of the tree. And then when it doesn't quite work like that, and when there's a bit of pressure put on us and a bit of opposition to us, it can make us doubt. It can make us a bit confused. It can make us think, hang on, has something gone wrong? Is God not telling the same story anymore? God was never telling that story. It's a different story. And Stephen, when he's answering the council, he tells them the true story. Now, I'm going to give you homework. Read his sermon at home. It's uh, most of chapter seven. It's long, but he goes through the whole history of the story. Give it a read because it's, it's good stuff. But let me pick out some highlights. So he starts by talking about Abraham. And he talks about how Abraham was in this land that God had promised to his descendants, but God hadn't given the land to Abraham. And so he uses the phrase, it's like they were resident aliens. That's an important phrase, keep that in mind. It's like they were, they were living in a land that was run by someone else. They weren't in charge, they weren't at the top of the tree. They were having to take what they were given by others. They were faithful, but they weren't powerful. And they ended up being mistreated and enslaved in the land. So you can see these two different uh, parts of society. You've got the people who God's called, the resident aliens at the bottom of the heap, enslaved and mistreated. Then you've got the powerful elite, the empire, the people in charge at the top. Where's God at work? Where's God's story being worked out and told? Well, it's the deprivileged. It's those that are not in power, those that are not at the top. Then he talks about Joseph, and again, he contrasts Joseph and his brothers, the power that they had over him and his position as one who was mistreated, and yet God was with him and brought salvation through him. And then he goes to Moses, and he talks about now you've got a situation where the Pharaoh, the kind of ultimate embodiment of earthly power, of empire, of all of that, that's pushing down the people. So you have to make bricks. I'm not even going to give you the materials. I'm not going to give you the straws. I'm going to oppress you. I'm going to make life hard for you. So much so that he ordered the, the baby boys to be killed. He, he was harsh. He was mean. He was cruel. Then you've got Moses who gets saved from this order to kill the baby boys. He gets brought up in the imperial palace. And so he's like a, a kid as he's growing up who's got a, a foot in each world. He straddles both. In one sense, he's living in all the kind of glory and prestige and power of earthly empire. And yet he can identify with this downtrodden, mistreated people of God. And there's a tension in him. And he chose to take the side of the downtrodden. He chose to take the side of God's people, exactly the ones whose cries God had heard. And again, it uses the phrase of Moses, he became a resident alien. 
He wasn't well received. He had to go to Midian. He had to live in a place where no longer was he in a palace. No longer was he in charge. No longer did he have access to the power structures of the day. He was living in someone else's land as a stranger. Subject to the whims of the people in charge. That phrase, resident alien, is key to Stephen's speech. It's key to what we need to think about. We don't belong. As the people of God, this earth isn't our home. We we won't fully fit here. We're like aliens. We're, we're, We're in someone else's world. We have one foot in a different world. Our value system belongs to heaven. There's a different way of looking at things. So when we come into the face of earthly power structures that are all about what they're all about, of course we're never going to fit. Of course we're not. So God hears the groaning of his people and he calls Moses to stand up to the Pharaoh, to this powerful empire. Now Moses had been rejected by the people to be their ruler and judge, but God had appointed him as ruler and saviour, just like Jesus. But when he delivers them, when he brings them out of their slavery in Egypt, there's opposition from within. They're hard-hearted. In verse 39, Stephen says, look, in their hearts, what they'd done is they turned back to Egypt. There was something in them that craved going back to how things were. They craved the very empire that had oppressed them. Why? Because to stand against it, to stand against earthly power, is uncomfortable. That's when the pressure comes. When you're living different to the system the world lives, when you're thinking different to how the world thinks about power and authority and who gets to be established and in charge, when you're doing something different, it feels like it's tense, it's it's hard. And don't we sometimes do exactly the same? Don't we, even when we can see all the hollow faults of the way of the world... Don't we sometimes just crave it anyway? Don't we sometimes just want to line up with it? Just like these people did. So then Stephen goes on to talk about the tent of the testimony, the tabernacle. And this was the tent where the presence of God dwells. And uh, if you know anything about a tent, you'll know that it's designed to be mobile. It's designed to be on the move. It spoke of something about the wild, free, utterly sovereign God who can go where he pleases, who can lead his people anywhere and they will follow him. He's with his minority people in the face of empire and power and that was the tabernacle. But then you get David. And David asked, and then Solomon actually did it, we want to build a house for you. Now, I don't know if you know this, but a house is very different to a tent. Because where a tent is mobile and it speaks of the utter freedom to be anywhere, a house, the danger is control, isn't it? The the danger saying, I'm going to build a house for God, is saying, so I'll know where he is. So he's always there on call. So he's not going to be anywhere other than Jerusalem because his house is in Jerusalem that's where he lives he's in my city he's under my control my power my empire my imperial charge okay now God's domesticated now God's part of the system now God runs with my administration it's a very different way of looking at things and there were perhaps I think elements of this in certainly in Solomon I don't know in David necessarily in the heart in doing it but by the time Stephen's speaking to this these people it's become utterly entrenched the temple has just been turned into another tool of political power another tool of control another tool of empire of treading down the people and so Stephen gives his critique verse 48 he says this yet the most high does not dwell 
in houses made with human hands. You think it's all about the temple. You think you've got God in your box. God doesn't dwell in a house made by human hands. God is sovereign and free and God will do something different. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. See what Stephen's doing here? He's likening what's happening in his own day to the repeated story of God and his people through history. Time and again, God's worked in a particular way. And he's saying to these people that he's talking to, you've taken this story of God and his people and you've somehow ended up on exactly the wrong side of it. It's like you said, this is our story, we're living this and you've become the wrong side of the story. You've become the powerful ones. You've become the ones who are treading down the people of God. And so it's always been. Verse 51, he says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. He's basically saying, you don't get it. You are forever opposing the Holy Spirit, just as your ancestors used to do. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? They killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one. And now you have become his betrayers and murderers. You're the ones that received the law as ordained by angels, yet you've not kept it. Isn't it a provocative thought that if these people, these authorities of that day, could say that this was the story they believed, could say this was the tradition they'd inherited and end up on utterly the wrong side of the story. Isn't it provocative to think about the centuries and centuries of history since? To think about the time and time and time again when the church has flirted with earthly power, when the church has leaned into state control and coercion and using earthly power to get people to do what it wants and empire, and celebrity, and all these things that are just utterly the way of the world, and downtrodden the lowly, and downtrodden those who God is working through. Could it be that a lot of the time we've ended up on the wrong side of the story as well? That's a sober thought that we need to think about. Isn't it also encouraging too, to see that all the while, while there's these earthly powers, while there's even earthly religious powers in Jerusalem in that day, that all the while God's at work. And all the while, time and again in history, God's raised up people and God's heard the cries of his people from the margins. And a faithful, prophetic minority facing the pressure of dominant power to see God is still at work. Isn't that encouraging for Stephen? as he's dragged before the councils, he's having rocks thrown at him. Wouldn't that be encouraging for Corrie ten Boom as, as she's brought into that concentration camp, seeing the earthly power of her day? Isn't it encouraging for countless others around the world that God hasn't forgotten, that God doesn't ignore, but that God is at work in the lowly and at the margins? As the pressure gets turned up on us, we should... We should see this as an encouragement. We should see that if we don't belong, then of course there's going to be pressure. Of course it's going to be hard. I was listening to a podcast this week by, with a guy called Dr. Constantine Campbell being interviewed. And um, he got into this theme. I think it's a really good interview. He's written a very provocatively titled book called Jesus v. Evangelicals. I've not read the book, but the interview was fascinating. And um, he said this, political power is not a Christian value. Read the New Testament. That's not part of the mandate for Christians to seize political power and enforce a Christian agenda on the wider society. That's got nothing to do with the teaching of the New Testament, nothing at all. And it's the exact opposite 
of what the first Christians did. So Stephen, he had his present empowering of the Spirit. He had the story of how God's worked in the past. And then thirdly, he had confidence for the future. So I'll pick up the story in verse 54 of Acts 7. When they heard these things, they became enraged. They ground their teeth at Stephen. But filled with the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they covered their ears and with a loud shout all rushed together against him. Then they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning Stephen, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he'd said this, he died and Saul approved of their killing him. Do you see Stephen in, in verse 55, it says, he gazed into heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. That place at God's right hand is the place of authority. We saw at the start of Acts that Jesus ascended up to heaven and was enthroned. He was made God's anointed king. He was put in charge of all things. We use the phrase right-hand man, don't we? Someone's right-hand man is someone who, who, who stands with them in the work that they're doing. And Jesus has been given that position over all of the heavens and the earth. And it says that he's standing up which means that he's not finished his work. He's still working. He's not just sitting down for a rest at the end of the day, but he's stood, he's active, and he's engaged. There's Stephen enduring opposition and argument and hostility and persecution and even martyrdom at the hands of those with power and authority on the earth. But he looks up and he sees Jesus, the one who has all authority, who's high, who's exalted over all of it. Isn't that reassuring? Because wouldn't that give Stephen confidence that, okay, I might be going through this now, but everything's not out of control, that Jesus is telling a different story. Jesus is doing a work, and I can be confident that everything I'm going through now, that he will be bringing for good. The last book of the Bible is the book of Revelation, and it sometimes freaks people out. It sometimes is one that people like to avoid. It's basically telling the same story as the book of Acts. So Acts tells the story from an earthly perspective using prose and narrative. Revelation tells the same story from the perspective of heaven using pictures and imagery. And uh, as we see in Acts, all this chaos, all the uh, nations raging and the pressure heating up. In Revelation, that's symbolised by the sea. The sea is always the symbol of earthly power, earthly chaos, the nations. It's something to fear. And we see as we see the throne room in heaven, the sea is totally still crystal. It might seem chaotic here and from Stephen's perspective it might look like everything's out of control. Then he sees Jesus at the right hand of God. It's like no, no we've got this. It's okay. From heaven's perspective everything's calm. Everything is under control. You might have heard the analogy of like a piece of embroidery and when you look at one side of it it looks a mess. It looks like there's loose ends everywhere. There's threads going all over the place but then you flip it and you see wow something beautiful has been created here. And that's how it is, because God is at work, and God's work can't be stopped. And it mentioned, I don't know if you noticed, there's a passing reference to a young man 
who was present as Stephen was being stoned to death. And people were putting their cloaks at his feet. And this was a young man called Saul. Uh, And Stephen prayed, do not hold this sin against them. And we see in coming chapters that that prayer was answered. Because this young man, Saul, also went by the name Paul. And we see Jesus save him in a remarkable way. And then through him, he spearheaded missionary journeys into all parts of the Mediterranean world. The church spread like wildfire, and a lot of it was through Paul's ministry and Paul's work. He was there, and he saw Stephen. And later in his life, he wrote these words in Romans 8. And I I wonder, I just wonder, if he had in mind Stephen as he wrote this. Romans 8. It's Christ who died, or rather, who was raised, who is also at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? No. In all these things, we're more than victorious through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So in today's story, we've looked at an example of where pressure has been turned up, where it's extreme, where it's like the 150-ton press upon Stephen. Many of us, most of us, maybe all of us, may not have to face what Stephen faced. But the press will come. We will face pressure for our faith at different times. And we have exactly what he had. Stephen had everything he needed to be strong, to thrive and to flourish when the pressure was on. He had the story of how God's worked time and again in history. We have that same story. That's what we live by. He had this vision of Jesus at the right hand of God, all authority. You know, Jesus hasn't moved. It's not like uh, he stood down from that place. Jesus is still at the right hand of God with all authority interceding for you and for me. And he had the present empowering of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit was with him. The Spirit had filled him. And that same Spirit is at work today, filling you and filling me. We're told in Ephesians, go on being filled with the Spirit of God. He wants to fill us again and again and again for whatever he calls us to. Pressure will come. God has given us everything we need to flourish and to not be crushed when that press is upon us.